Vacation starts with VA. One thing you'll love about your trip to Virginia is that you'll never have to settle for one thing. All that you love is all in one trip. Start yours at Virginia.org. It's Thursday, May 4th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. That Jeb Bush, he's in a lot of trouble, was asked, do you support the war? Would you support the war, knowing what you know now? It's like, yeah, I support the war. It's my brother's war. Sure, I support the war. Did a little backtracking. Oh, wait, yeah, I didn't hear the first part of that question. I tend not to hear the first parts of questions. Like, ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States, George Bush. Then he comes on the stage and is like, why didn't you say I was the next president of the United States? But this whole thing where you ask a guy's brother, hey, did your brother make all these mistakes in the war? The answer is consistent. Like Stevie Pickett, the younger brother of Major General George Pickett, they said, would you have led the charge? And he said, yeah, yeah, you know, on paper, I like the idea of the charge. We just get a couple breaks. For instance, it's a wide open field. We were essentially target practice for the Union. What if a flock of condors intercedes, right? Could happen. I support the charge. When Trevor Hannibal, brother of Hannibal of Carthage Hannibal, was asked, all right, Battle of Zana, you're routed by the Romans. Carthage crumbles. Would you, like your brother Hannibal, would you have done anything different? And so Trevor Hannibal said, well, listen, Hannibal used elephants, but they were confused. They were thwarted. I say, are you ready for this? I'd have just used smarter elephants. In fact, we defunded our elephant procurement program. I think we could have had something called Operation Dumbo Drop. Aerial elephants, that's right. And it's not just on war questions. When they asked Bobby Broccoli, the brother of Albert Cubby Broccoli, when they said, well, your brother was the producer of the James Bond films. So knowing that, was George Lazenby a good choice to play James Bond? And Bobby Broccoli said, no, what are you kidding? We got rid of him and we brought back Sean Connery. What's wrong with you? Not like I'm running for president or anything. On the show today, I spiel about a dumb tweet. Not just a dumb tweet, an insensitive tweet. Not just a dumb and insensitive tweet, a nonsensical tweet. Really, the SAE song in the back of a frat bus of tweets. And also, NFL Hall of Famer Alan Page and his daughter. Page used to be a purple people eater. Now he concentrates on pupils and readers. He writes books. What I'm saying is he and his daughter write kids' books. Oh, yeah, he's also a Supreme Court justice in Minnesota. But first, the FX show The Americans is full of intrigue, excitement, drama, and great acting. We are not going to ask its creators about any of that. We're going to talk about one specific prop. That prop, next. On an episode of the FX show, The Americans, set in the early 80s, the suburban couple who have been successfully spying for Russia do something very, very American. They eat takeout Chinese food. And because this gustatory action is depicted in a visual medium, they do it in the way that takeout Chinese food is always eaten in the movies and on TV out of a carton. In fact, it's usually a carton with a picture of a pagoda on the side. Now, here on Slate, we have a video of like dozens of instances of people eating Chinese food out of cartons. And we trace the history. We examine the motivations. I am your guide to this history of eating Chinese food out of the cartons in the movies. But right now, I want to talk to Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, the creators of The Americans. And I want to indulge in a bit of pop culture cross-examination and ask about this, shall we say, trope. So hello, Joel. Hello, Joe. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. So in a recent episode of the show, which I I should say is an artistic success, it is a hit for the FX network. It was, I was just looking at the critics' best of list, came in third, 
behind Fargo, one behind True Detective. I don't know if the True Detective weirdo season finale was factored in. Anyway, great job, but there you were committing as grand a cliche as you can on screen. Your characters were eating Chinese food out of the cartons. How does this happen? Cliche? Cliche Cliche or homage? Yeah, what are you talking about? Cliche? Don't you eat Chinese food out of a carton? It's realism. (laughs) Plus which, this character, after all, I think we were making a statement about the fact that he's now alone. He has nobody with whom he can share a plate, poor guy. So when you do this, uh, how much of your fingerprints are on that small a decision? Are you saying, no, it should be out of the carton? Is it in the script to be out of the carton? How does that happen? So our fingerprints are pretty much on everything that goes right. And anything (laughs) that didn't work is not our fault. I, I think that's right. I think we had nothing to do with that. But I will tell you that uh, we did have lengthy talks with the director in editing recently about a similar scene and an interesting fact that you often don't see the characters actually putting food in their mouths when they're eating because mm-hmm. they have to be talking. So you can go back and forth character to character and you never see an actual bite of food going into the mouth. We the, thought that was interesting. The director was claiming it was unappetizing. We were arguing for realism. I don't know where that one finally landed. <laughs> So if you were doing a show that was set in the, the present or if you're doing a movie that was set in the present, and there was a Chinese food scene, would you have second thoughts about having the characters eat out of the carton, knowing what you know now about the cliched nature of such an action? I might have second thoughts about Chinese food if I was doing a show <laughs> set today. I think sushi or pad thai would be more accurate. What do you think? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. You know, you're always looking for cinematic quality. So the question is, what looks more interesting, a plate or that beautiful little container? There's something about that container. Americans just love it. It's almost it's a part of our history, I think. But I think it's interesting what you mentioned in terms of the period quality of it, because back then in the early 80s, pretty much the only ethnic food that you would order in outside of pizza was Chinese. And now there's just a wider variety out there. Okay, now let me ask you, have you ever written, directed, or overseen a funeral? And if so, was it in the rain? <laughs> That's a very well, the, good question. we have a lot of snow on this show. If we had one, it would be in the snow, mm-hmm. but not by choice. Have you ever directed a scene where someone's driving a car, a high-speed chase, and there are two men trying to move a plate glass across the street, and the plate glass gets there? They avoid accident. No, you really are a type of guy. We're anti all those cliches. I mean, after all, if you saw our third episode this season, we did the opposite of a high-speed chase. We did just basically driving around for six hours. (laughs) Low-speed chase. There was no plate glass, no baby carriage. There was... There, there was just driving around with a toothache. Yeah, <laughs> Keep our, it coming. You're yeah. not going to get us on anything but the Chinese carton. No, no fruit carts or vendors selling uh, roses were upended in that slow piece of speech. <laughs> exactly. No, no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> that's right. I guess the that's baby right. carriage would come to mind. Your characters would know that because that's from the Odessa step sequence of the battleship Potemkin. So they were, I'm sure, raised on that. Plus <laughs> which one of our uh, executive producers on the show is Graham Yost who wrote Speed, which has one of the great baby carriage moments uh, of all filmmaking, because the baby carriage, it turns out, is being pushed by a homeless person, and it's filled with recyclables, if you remember that. <laughs> oh, my God! Oh, my God! There was no baby. Okay? It was full of cans. Are you sure? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Oh, my God! <laughs> <laughs> but you got to give it to Yost. He was onto the cliche many, many years ago. See, I know you guys get into this to tell stories and to connect with an audience. But if you just had a season where you're like, all we're going to do is explode every cliche of cinema, I'd watch that. I mean, we have a whole, we have both all the regular cliches to deal with and the spy cliches, which are a whole subcategory of cliches that we have to try to keep off the show. Right. It's funny. We have a running joke, joke with Dan Sackheim, our directing producer, 
when other directors come in and he's constantly saying no to anything that has been in any other spy movie that feels like a spy trope. He's saying, nope, nope no dark stairwells, nope. no dark warehouses. And, and your kids can't have stuffed mooses or squirrels, right? <laughs> no stuffed mooses, no stuffed squirrels. No trench coats. We're, listen, we're just very proud that we have a handheld electronic football game from the era. <laughs> Oh, Which was see, halfway I, for story purposes and halfway because I think Joe and I wanted to see one again. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I know the show has a lot of buzz. I guess that's what they're talking about. My last, oh. my last question is, is there a visual cliche of cinema, of TV that you've noticed that either you've addressed or decided not to do or that just uh, grates on you a little bit? Just give us a second because we're, we're crossing them out all the time. Um, I would have said anything in slow motion, but we actually have a little slow motion coming up, but it's very, very subtle. Very little. And of um, course, it's not in an action scene because we wouldn't do that. Yeah. But it's funny, you know, those cliches become cliches for a reason. And usually if you follow them back enough, eventually you get to something that was truly spectacular and wonderful. So you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you also want to find what's your own voice as you make these things. We've just given me a quest to find the cinematic er eating Chinese food out of a carton. <laughs> That'd be great. When you get to that very first, the first scene of the first caveman eating Chinese food out of a carton, that'd be wonderful to put up on your website. <laughs> it's in the missing reel of Birth of a Nation. One of the Klansmen eats Chinese food out of a carton. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Joe Weisberg, Joel Fields. They do a lot of things. They think about Chinese food on the screen. They're the executive producers of The Americans on FX. It's, it's inspired a Slate podcast. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Come by for Chinese anytime. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you're missing out on a bunch of great podcast stuff, technical term, exclusive podcasts, extra segments, your own special feed of Slate podcast. Now, there is one more reason to become a member, the new Slate podcast soundboard. All right, this is for geeky obsessives, but if you're a Slate Plus member, maybe you are one. If you ever want to make your favorite podcast host talk like chatty Kathy dolls, it's your big opportunity. We have collected audio clips from your hosts, including me, and we've turned them into a kind of absurd but totally addictive soundboard and a face that says a phrase. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can try it yourself. We'll put a link in the show notes. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can try it yourself. We'll put a link in our show notes. If you're not a member, sign up at slate.com slash gist plus. Alan and his perfectly pointed, impossibly perpendicular Pinky was the first book written by co-authors Cammy and Alan Page. And much like the titular finger, Alan Page has had a career without parallel. You might know him as a Hall of Fame defensive end, predominantly with the Minnesota Vikings. He was a purple people eater, then with the Chicago Bears, went to law school while playing, is now and has been for a long time a member of the Minnesota Supreme Court. He is the senior most member of the Minnesota Supreme Court. His daughter, Cammie, and his co-author is a second grade teacher in Minnesota, and they're out with a new book called The Invisible You. Welcome, Cammie. Welcome, Justice Page. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Cammie, let me start with you. Sure. Did your dad read to you a lot as a child? He did. He did. I think that's where I developed my passion for literature. 
Um, I remember going to the library mobile with him, um, you know, just getting cozied up in our jammies and walking down to the park near our house and, you know, picking out books and just the joy of, you know, that quality time with dad uh, reading just, I think, was what drove me to become an educator. How old were you when he played? Do you remember him from his playing days pretty well? You know, I was young. I remember going to daycare at training camp. You know, they'd put me in the locker room and plot me down with a piece of gum and, you know, say, stay put. Um, So I don't really remember the games, but I do remember all the hijinks from the locker room. Are you going to tell me, like, Merlin Olsen was your babysitter? Actually, Walter Payton. Really? Yeah. yeah. With the Bears. And he really was sweetness, wasn't he? He was. He 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 always indulged us with candy, and I remember he had like a, a a witch's mask in his locker that he used to pull a string, and it would spit at us. He always had he always had good jokes. Justice Page, did you, for most of your career, look at football as a way to something else? I mean, you did law school, so was that more? Hey, let's be practical. I have to p- plan for my post life, or did you have this vision that? Because of the a little bit of wealth, but definitely prominence of football, that could be a jumping off point to other big things I want to do with life. You know, when I started off, I had no interest in being a football player. I didn't start playing until I was a ninth grader and then played because my brother, who was ahead of me in school, played. And I enjoyed the game. And I enjoyed it through high school. Enjoyed it through through college, and it was not my intent to play professionally. When the opportunity came along, uh, I decided to take advantage of it, not sort of as a departure point or anything else, just because I loved playing the game and the fact that it paid reasonably well compared to other careers at that time. Right. And so give us an idea. You were, I think, the MVP of the NFL in 1971. About how much money were you getting paid in your MVP season? I think it was something like fifty-five dollars or $60,000 a year. Uh-huh. And Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, who just won the MVP, I think gets paid $23 million a year. Well, you know, timing is everything. Yeah, I guess. What did you learn about, I guess everyone thinks they could write a children's book, and uh, Cammie will tell you that's not true. What did you learn as an author of a children's book? The real challenge was to learn how to do dialogue and to put things together very concisely because you have a very limited amount of space. You have to communicate your thoughts and your ideas and your points very sparsely but yet, at the same time, you want to write a book, at least my view of the world is, you want, to, you want a book that tugs at people's heart a little bit and puts a smile on your face. Cammy, what children's books did you point your father to as you embarked on the writing career and said, here, read this. This is, this is the way to write a children's book. You know, I think there are those classics like Corduroy. I think the beauty of a book like Corduroy is that, for me, I could see myself in the main character. I think that's what we're hoping to do. There's a there's a movement right now called We Need Diverse Books, mm-hmm. and I think it's really important for children to see themselves in stories. And so that was one of the goals that we had, was just to make sure that we had a diverse uh, group of characters in the two stories that we've right. written. And of course, Corduroy, the girl in that book is, I, I guess she's African-American. She might be Latina. Yeah. But, and she comes from a 
definitely working class background, it would seem. And, you know, that's rare. I have been reading. I, I, I watch a lot of television with my kids. There's a lot of diversity on television, but there isn't that much diversity in the characters of children's books. Corduroy was written in 1968. And now in 2015, it's harder maybe to find a black main character than in 1968. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of the benefits that we have when we work with the publisher that we do. Um, we have a lot of leverage, and we work with a wonderful illustrator. We actually have a relationship with David Geister, and so he he knows our vision, and he really executes it well. Just tell me this, though, Justice Page. Here you are, member of the NFL Hall of Fame, esteemed justice. You were reading Corduroy a couple years ago? <laughs> well, I, I, I read a lot of uh, children's books. I've been involved in a reading program called Everybody Wins since, I believe, 1996, reading to first, second, third graders. I get the full range of children's literature. What are your favorites? I'm particularly a Dr. Seuss fan, but uh, recently with our grandchildren, there's a book called The Circus Ship Mm -hmm. that they just love. Cammie, tell me about the new book, The Invisible You. Sure. So it's about a little boy uh, who's new in his neighborhood. He is new at school, and he is feeling different. He feels bad about being different, and he learns through his teacher that we are all indeed different and that being different is something that everybody experiences and it's how to feel good about your differences and at the same time how to uh, treat others who are different from us. So I think it really gives children a language and it sort of norms being different. And uh, Justice Page, I want to ask you something because I am... One of the things I do for many years, I was a sports correspondent for NPR, and I have a podcast called Hang Up and Listen, and the number one thing we discuss is issues of football, usually, and head injury, and there's so many horror stories, but I have frequently made the case, and I say, yes, that's true, and I'm not minimizing that, but it's rare that we talk about the successes, and I always, I will, now that I'm talking to you, I realize what I always do, I say, what about Wizard White? What about Jack Kemp? What about Alan Page? I always put you in there. You know, is that fair? <laughs> Do you, is that okay that you're the counterbalance to that argument about head injuries? You know, football, by its nature, is a dangerous and violent sport. And we have to understand that. How we go about dealing with uh, the injuries, that's something that, that all of us have to sort of work through and figure out how much we're willing to uh, sacrifice, if you will, in terms of health later in life. But clearly there are a lot of people who have played and performed and, and gone on to do great things. Minnesota Supreme Court Justice Alan Page, his daughter Cammie Page, they're co-authors of the new children's book, The Invisible You. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Thank you Mike. So much. And now the spiel, derailed and derided. That Amtrak train that crashed just outside of Philadelphia now has a death toll of eight. And there are a lot of issues. Yesterday I talked about using seatbelts. The issue today in the news was uh, this automatic speed limiter that would have slowed the train, but it was not installed on that stretch of track. It is, of course, so sad. And it goes without saying, at a time like this, that political commentators should speak with sensitivity. 
or maybe it doesn't go without saying. Maybe it needs to be said to Eric Erickson, Eric Erickson, former CNN commentator, current Fox commentator, the proprietor of the blog Red State. He tweeted this, Amtrak's killed more people than fracking. Guess which one the left wants to subsidize? At first, I thought this was so stupid that I dismissed it. Well, I tweeted it, I dissed it, then I dismissed it. 200% stupid, I thought. But the more I thought about it, the more the complexity and the texture of its stupidity fascinated me. The withered, fetid mind that thinks of a tweet like this, how does that work? You know, because the tweet works on so many levels, like an inside-out Moby Dick that had been beached on the shore and explodes in a spasm of whale guts and gas accumulation, resulting in the noisome stank of the sea and carrion. This tweet right now is being feasted on by seagulls who will soon themselves fall from the sky having been contaminated by the avian stupid flu. Speaking of birds, famous poem. There's a famous poem by Wallace Stevens called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And I wanted to take this idea and I wanted to apply it to this, this very stupid, stupid tweet by Eric Erickson. The tweet, Amtrak's killed more people than fracking. Guess which one the left wants to subsidize? Okay, so first let's turn it around and let's use this killed more people idea, this metric to indict the right. You ready? Guns have killed more people than Amtrak or fracking, but the right loves guns. George W. Bush killed more people than Amtrak. Lethal injection has killed 1,233 people since 1976. That's a lot more than Amtrak. Amtrak's only killed 158 people since 1976. Fried foods have killed more people than Amtrak. So wait, you're saying, yeah, but fried foods aren't a left-right issue. Oh, they are. The Texas Agriculture Commissioner, Sid Miller, a Republican, professional rodeo rider, says that he wants to overturn Texas's regulations that ban deep fat frying and certain carbonated beverages in public schools. Quote, it's not about French fries, it's about freedom. And one more, not vaccinating kills a lot more people than Amtrak. And guess which party has some leading candidates that refuse to tell voters to get their kids vaccinated. All right, so those are the stats. Since 1975, 158 people killed on Amtrak. It's only four a year. Stats are important. Facts are important. But let's once again examine this quote, this stupid quote. Try to find 13 ways. I just listed five ways of looking at this quote. Here's some more. This time, we'll talk about the idea of deadliness as a metric to determine worth or value or to make a judgment about something based on deadliness. All right, here we go. There have been approximately the same number of presidents as there have been managers of the Boston Red Sox, if you count interim managers but more presidents have been assassinated. Red Sox manager Kevin Kennedy, not assassinated. U.S. President John F. Kennedy, assassinated. Yet Red Sox managers are paid more than presidents. That was hard to follow. Trust me, you rewind the thing. The logic follows the exact same pattern as the Eric Erickson tweet. All right, one more in the vein of deadliness. Here we go. More people have died from eating tainted ice cream than have ever died from eating tainted manhole covers, yet the FDA wants to allow ice cream to still be eaten. I got another one, I got another one. More Americans have died from dog bites than tiger maulings, yet which species do liberal zookeepers keep in fenced-in enclosures? All right, now we're up to eight, eight ways of looking at a stupid, stupid tweet. Now what I'm going to do is to compare the value of transportation against the value of energy, right? That's what this guy was doing, Amtrak v. fracking. So let's do that a little bit. More people throw up on roller coasters 
than throw up in nuclear power plants. Biker gangs are more menacing than solar panel gangs. The Toyota Scion is dorkier than a generating station. Ario Speedwagon didn't have as many hits as ACDC. Again, comparing the transportation being worse than the energy just because, I don't know, that's what he wants to do. So that was 12. You ready for the 13th tweet? 13th way of looking at a dumb tweet? In miniature golf, getting the ball under the locomotive is not as satisfying as weaving it through the windmill. And now I'm going to give you a bonus rebuttal to this tweet. That was wrong. That was insensitive. That was also inaccurate. When he says that Amtrak has killed more people than fracking, he's ignoring a very subtle fact. That's that fracking has killed far more people than Amtrak. I quoted the Amtrak facts about four years since 1975. I mean, the, the fracking facts... I'm not even going to talk about the environmental impact down the road or how many people might die because of extremely well-documented earthquakes. Let's just talk about oil field deaths. So this is from the Houston Chronicle headline. Oil field deaths rose sharply from 2008 to 2012. Drilling and fracking have taken an especially high toll in Texas. Oil field deaths reached 545 during America's drilling and fracking frenzy with Texas's 216 reported fatalities leading the nation. And not every oil field death is a fracking, hydraulic, fracturing-related death, but many, many are, many more than the Amtrak-related deaths. Let's also add to the fact that nationwide oil patch workers are eight and a half times more likely than other private employees to die in work-related transportation accidents. Let's also add to this reports that the death tolls on Texas highways had been falling until fracking took over. And let's also add this. Here's an NPR story. In Texas, traffic deaths climb amid fracking boom. An investigation by Houston Public Media and the Houston Chronicle shows Texas highways have become the nation's deadliest amid a fracking boom. Flatbed trucks bearing loads of steel pipe often barrel down these roads. Truck drivers run into problems when they have to make wide turns onto narrow side streets. Plus, a lot of the drivers are sleep deprived. Plus, they're not exactly well trained. Plus, the loads are extremely heavy and interacting with cars. Yeah, it's a toxic nightmare. So there was nothing about this tweet from Eric Erickson that made any sense in any way. And the funny thing is, other than the fact you have to laugh at the stupid tweet, is I don't even mind fracking. I'm mostly in favor of it. I think that it's been a boon to the economy. I think we need the oil, and I think it probably can be done safer than in Oklahoma. I also used to not mind Eric Erickson. Thought he was fine. He wrote a good book. Red State was a fine conservative blog. And I also don't think a man should be judged at his worst moments. And maybe I was judging too harshly. Maybe I've gone overboard. Maybe I did it yesterday, too. I was very critical of the former Secretary of Transportation, Ray LaHood, for being generally clueless on the issue of seatbelts on trains. But I will tell you why. And the reason is that my cousin was on that train. In fact, my cousin was one of the eight fatalities in that Amtrak crash. I don't say this to win the argument, to elevate my opinion, to trump another opinion, because I've got a personal connection. I don't like when people do that and play that card, and it doesn't give me any more standing or insight or credibility. It just gives me a little more emotion. Speaking with my editor, Joel looks over my script. Yesterday, he said, you should pro- if you're going to talk about this, you should probably disclose it. And I think that's right. And that's why I'm talking about my cousin. My cousin's name was Laura Finnamore. 
She was a spark. She was a wonderful person. She was a great person to have in your family. She was a real New Yorker. She grew up in Douglaston, Queens. She lived in Manhattan. She was urbane. She traveled the world. She was really connected to her friends, great at her job. She had a high-powered job in real estate. Her company worked on deals throughout the world. She was competent. She was trusted. Like I said, she was a spark, and she should be remembered in all these ways. She and the seven others who died and the dozens who were seriously injured should not be leveraged into making a stupid, stupid point. Though I thank you, Eric Erickson, for your point. It concentrated my mind and it gave me some focus. I found out what people have known for, I guess, centuries, that in really tough times, a good fool has a lot of value. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist. Joel Myers is the managing producer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer. To see the video we spoke of with people eating Chinese food out of cartons, go to slate.com slash the gist or uh, facebook.com slash slate gist. And as always, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Zabel, host of Adulthood Made Easy, and in our second episode of Guide to Grads, we're talking about moving to a new city, which can be terrifying, but Terry White, the editor-in-chief of Time Out New York, has tons of great tips for making it feel like home. And now we have our own feed in iTunes, so all you have to do is search Adulthood Made Easy and hit subscribe. Subscribe.